Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Today, we're going to talk with author, poet, and Atlantic staff writer Clint Smith about his most recent book, Above Ground, which explores the complexities of parenthood in a time of political and cultural turmoil and celebrates the ways that joy, both big and small, can still be found in a scary world. That's next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. WDET's live broadcast of Detroit Today from the 2023 Mackinac Policy Conference is made possible by the Charles H. Wright Museum of African American History. Good day, everyone, and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019. WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and I'm really glad you've decided to join us today. The decision to become a parent, to create a life and bring it into the world, is one of the most difficult things any of us ever does. It teaches you to center another life over your own all the time. It requires enormous amounts of patience, enormous amounts of money, enormous amounts of time. And it fundamentally changes you as a human being. You become more than yourself, permanently invested in something bigger than yourself. And you experience joy and anxiety and celebration and tragedy in ways you probably never imagined possible. It's even harder to do all of that right now. The intense political conflict that surrounds us, the economic and racial inequality that we're all experiencing, and the intense fear and loneliness and disruption from the pandemic. These things have all warped parenting. Our instincts, our reactions, our dreams even. It can be really difficult to hold all the chaos together, the good and the bad, the personal and the collective. All the change can just be overwhelming, and it can be hard to know what to do with it. Author and staff writer at The Atlantic, Clint Smith, tries to hold the many contradictions and peculiarities of life up and simply observe them. In his new book, Above ground, Clint explores what it's like to raise children during political and cultural turmoil. And he takes a really long, hard look at the beauty that exists in the small moments, despite the tragedy that sometimes surrounds us. We're in the time right now between Mother's and Father's Day, and we thought it would be a really good time to talk with Clint about what it's like to be a young parent during this time? What are the particular challenges for parents that exist in a divided and fraught country? And 
what are the things he tries to do to both console his children as well as ground them in difficult truths that can help them navigate a sometimes scary world. Clint Smith, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thank you so much for having me, Stephen. It's good to be here. Yeah. So parent heart is really hard, as I said, and it's filled with all of these paradoxes, joy and terror in particular. Is that what you're trying to get to in this book, the contradictions that are wrapped up in being a parent? Yeah, I think you put it really well. I think part of what this book is trying to uh, wrestle with is the simultaneity of not only parenthood, but the sort of broader human experience, thinking about how our lives are animated by uh, moments of joy and love and laughter and levity. And at the same time that we experience those emotions, we might simultaneously be experiencing a sense of anxiety, despair, and fear. Um, that so often these moments of, of, of joy that we experience are amid the sort of larger backdrop of social, political, economic, or, or ecological despair and catastrophe. And through the specific prism of parenthood, you know, part of what I'm interested in is how parenthood in and of itself is this thing that is one of the most remarkable, inspiring, beautiful things one can ever experience if they choose. And is also one of the most difficult one of the most exhausting, one of the most overwhelming, one of the most fear-inducing experiences. And, and I'm interested in how we hold those realities together and not, you know, it's our lives are not neatly sort of demarcated mm -hmm. until like Wednesday, Monday is our joy day and Tuesday <laughs> is our sad day and Wednesday is our, you know, despair day. It, it doesn't work like that. It is often the case that, you know, you will uh, be pushing your kid on a swing at the park on a beautiful sunny day and then get a phone call from uh, a number, you know, from your sister saying that she has a terminal illness or that you will be, you know, sitting with your friends, having an incredible dinner um, and, and laughing and, and, and celebrating one another's presence. While halfway around the world, there's another group of people, family and friends who are in a bunker just trying to make it to the next morning. And, and we live in a world where we, because of the nature, the sort of ecosystem of our media landscape and because of social media, where we have access to all of these things all of the time, all at the same time. And I'm interested in what that does to one's psyche, what it does to one's spirit, what it does to one's brain, how we and how all of us in this moment in time move through the world with all of those realities uh, in our bodies at once. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what made you decide that now was the time to write about this phenomenon and, and parenting? I mean, on the one hand, uh, you are a parent. And a little bit later, I want to talk about your journey to becoming uh, a, a parent. But, but you know, uh, you're also an observer of the things that go on around us and the times that, uh, that play havoc uh, on our lives. Uh, what was it about? Was it was it a parenting impulse or was it a journalism impulse that, that led you to this, this idea? Yeah, I think, you know, for me, poetry is the act of paying attention. Poetry is the thing in this world that allows me to, uh, to focus on, on what is happening around me and what is happening within me. It's the way I talk about it. It's almost as if, if there's a tree 
in, in front of your house and you walk past that tree every day. You walk past it to go get your mail, to get the newspaper, to bring your kids to the bus stop as you drive on your commute to, you know, commute to, to work or bring your dog on a walk. And so if somebody asked you to describe that tree, you know, you'd be able to tell them generally what color it was, how tall it was, the sort of general uh, contours of the tree. But then let's say one day you you stop and you, you really look at that tree in a way that maybe you hadn't before. And you zoom in on a particular leaf and you pay attention, you walk up and look at that particular leaf and you see that that leaf is actually three different shades of green. And you see that that leaf has uh, is turning yellow sort of at the edges as the seasons begin to change. And you see how there's a hole near the stem of the leaf where like a small caterpillar took a bite. It, it, it allows you to see the sort of act of paying attention allows you to see that tree with a, a sense of specificity, mm. granularity, um, to see the, the unique manifestations of that tree in a different way than if you had seen it in passing all the time. And, and for me, that is what poetry does in my world. Poetry is the act of stopping and looking and paying attention. Um, whether it is, again, paying attention to what's within me, what's within my spirit, uh, what questions I'm wrestling with in the world, but also paying attention to the outside world, an image, a moment, a feeling. And and over the, you know, I have a, a six-year-old and a four-year-old. Mm -hmm. And I, so, so much of the last several years uh, for me have been trying to be intentional about paying attention to these small moments mm -hmm. with my kids that that we, I might easily overlook, right? Because as we said, parenthood is tough and it's hard and it's exhausting and, and it can easily turn into a thing where you're just trying to like make it to the end of the day. But those young years, you know, when your kids are in those, you know, before they start elementary school and even those early years of elementary school, they're so unique and they're so special and, and you are watching these little humans that you help bring into the world, discover the world for the first time. And and I wanted to, as much as I could, try to capture those moments, try to almost use the poem as, as a sort of time capsule, as a sort of process of archiving, to hold on to these moments of things my kids said or did or saw mm. uh, that helped recalibrate my sense of my sense of the world, my sense of who I am in relationship to the world and what it means to to sort of try to be present uh, for these these two little humans as much as possible. Yeah. So so as parents, you know, we want to protect our kids. And as I said in the open, we also feel this incredible obligation to expose them to the realities of the world so that they can navigate it properly. And I think throughout the time that our children are children, uh, there's this push and pull of, of the, those two things. There's a tension, a natural tension uh, between them. I, I wonder if you can talk just a little about how you are finding that in the early stages of your children's lives and how you've kind of set up, uh, I guess, an approach to, to, to dealing with, uh, with that tension. You know, <laughs> often inelegantly, um, <laughs> like all of us, right? I, like all of us, you know, I am, uh, I don't know, you know, it, it, we were talking about poems as the act of paying attention. I think part of what poems also do is, is they, they push me to be present. 
in a different sort of way. Uh, because I think the very act of paying attention to these things that your kids do or say and trying to hold on to them and then, you know, writing about them and excavating them and digging into them make me in so many ways more fully appreciative of them and of often of the sort of sing either of the the sort of repetitive everyday nature of them or of the singularity of them when they happen. So, for example, uh, you know, some of the things I write about in the book are, you know, moments that we I have with my kids all the time, but that I want to rem that I try to use the poem as the way to remember how uh, how in the grand scheme of you know hopefully our our lives mm -hmm. you know which are which are prayerfully long um, that these these moments are so fleeting right so I have poems about making French toast with my kids on Sunday mornings or having dance parties with my kids after pizza night on Fridays or. Uh, watching my kid go down the slide at the park or watching my kid smell flowers for the first time. You know, these things that that you can easily sort of overlook because they happen often. You, you know, you go to the park all the time, mm -hmm. you make breakfast all the time, you have pizza, you know, and so it can be very easy to to lose a sense of how how special and and ultimately fleeting those moments are. But I think the poem, the very act of writing it allows me for the next time that that thing happens, the next time there's a dance party, the next time there's we're at the park, the next time we're um, making French toast, I feel the I experience that moment in a more present way because I have done the work of of detailing for myself how special that moment is, even if it's something that happens on a regular basis. And then on the other end, I have a poem that was about watching the uh, here in the DC region uh, with cicadas, this, these cicadas that come every 17 years. Mm -hmm. And they came, I think, maybe a year and a half ago it was during pandemic lockdown. And my kids were four and two. And, you know, the life cycle of these cicadas is so interesting because they live underground for 17 years, come come up to the earth, mate, make a lot of noise and then, and they, then die, they die right <laughs> and, and and it's so fascinating because there was this moment where i was sitting on my porch and i was watching my kids uh, and this is after the cicadas uh, had been around you know i think they came up and maybe it was two weeks or so and you can tell because there's this incessant buzzing that just is in the dc maryland virginia area for for two weeks and but then it stops and the sort of ground is just scattered with the exoskeletons of of all of these cicadas mm -hmm. and my kids were walking around and they were picking up cicada exoskeletons as almost almost as if they were treasure right like and they had their halloween buckets so they had these jack-o-lantern buckets and they were having a contest to see who could pick up the most cicadas and i had this moment where i was watching them and i was like the next time the cicadas come my children will be 21 and 19 exactly <laughs> like that and and this moment of watching my kids like pick up cicada shell you know the exoskeletons of these cicadas these little sort of golden carcasses and and running around and laughing and uh seeing who could collect the most like that moment will never happen again in that way and i don't know that i would have again i think the act of writing about it and because poetry for me is both the creation of art, but also the mechanism through which I do my best sort of meditation and reflection. It's almost a mindfulness practice. And it just allows me to focus on that 
in a different sort of way. And so it's those special moments, but also, you know, you speak, spoke to this tension. It also allows me to sit with those moments of fear mm. and those moments of anxiety. I'm, I'm raising two black children in, in this country, in this world. I'm raising children in this moment of ecological catastrophe. I'm raising children in this moment where it feels like the planet is, is burning. I'm raising children in this moment of, you know, we have this youth mental health crisis. I'm raising, you know, it's, the list goes on and on. And so there is a lot of anxiety and a lot of fear um, about what it means to to have young people and to be responsible for young people in these moments. And And I try to use writing as a way to process and mm-hmm. wrestle with both of those things. Yeah, yeah. The Cicada story is so familiar to me because uh, when my son was born, we lived in Baltimore. And uh, the, the first summer that he was around uh, was a cicada summer. Mm. And I will never forget the day that a cicada got into the house and oh, man. started to make that noise. Uh, and it's, yep. I mean, it's incredibly shrill and loud. And he was just absolutely delighted by it. I mean, he laughed <laughs> and giggled and ran around until we caught this thing and, and put it outside. I will never forget that. Of course, we moved to Detroit uh, when he was about when he was about six, so we didn't get that the the bookend, right? Uh, what does he think of cicadas as a seventeen or eighteen year old? He's nineteen mm. now and, and living here. But uh, but you're right; those moments they they really do just sort of burn these not just images but feelings into your mm. into your brain and they they set the the stage for uh the way that uh, that we think of our kids and the way that they kind of integrate into into our lives um okay we're going to take a quick break and when we come back we're going to continue this conversation with clint smith about his book above ground we also want to get going with you the listeners on the phones and on social Colin, tell us about parenthood. What is the experience like for you? How have you tried to navigate your family through this time of political and cultural chaos? And do you think this is a particularly chaotic political time? What are the lessons you're trying to instill in your kids to help them better navigate this changing world? 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can include you in the conversation. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. joined us. Our guest today is Clint Smith. He's a poet, an author, and a staff writer at The Atlantic. His most recent book is called Above Ground. Uh, It is a look at parenthood, uh, parenthood in this time uh, of real turmoil and kind of chaos, and how he's navigating that with his children. It's a book of really wonderful poems about that. Um, uh, We want to hear from you as well during the conversation. Give us a call, 313-577-1019, and tell us what your parenting experience is like. Uh, How are you trying to navigate through 
the political and cultural and economic chaos that we all kind of swim in every day right now, what are the lessons you're trying to instill in your kids to try to help them better navigate a world that seems to be changing faster uh, than maybe ever before. Uh, 313-577-1019 is the number. Uh, You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can work you into the conversation that way. Uh, Clint, I want to start this uh, part of the show with you reading a bit. Uh, There are a lot of changes, of course, that are packed into parenting, and one of them is that pain is reconfigured. I, I want you to read from no C-ception, and I think I'm pronouncing that the right way, but you'll correct me if I'm not. <laughs> Did I get it? <laughs> I think you got it. I would be absolutely happy to. Just going to find the page here. No C-ception. When one of the arms of a long fin squid is sliced off by the pincer of a crab or snapped away by a fish who seeks to turn its appendage into sustenance, the squid does not feel pain in its injured arm, but experiences the sensation of discomfort across its entire body. It is if you got a paper cut on your finger and felt all of your skin become delicate, hypersensitive to the touch. You, little one, are not attached to my body. You are neither a a limb nor a slice of skin, but you are part of me in ways I am still discovering. And when you are hurt, I feel your distress spread through every cell in me. I experience your wounds as if they were my own. So I, I, I love that imagery that you're using there, but it's such a familiar emotion for parents, this idea that they are us and we are them. Or as I said in the open, that when we have children, we become something bigger than ourselves, uh, that that we, uh, we transform really uh, into different creatures with different parts. Um, the... Uh, Talk about putting that into that into into the words in that poem and and the imagery uh, of that poem and that pain, uh, how different it is from anything you feel before you're a parent. Yeah, it's you know I'm I'm really interested in putting the experience of of parenthood, but you know sort of more broadly the human experience in conversation with different phenomena that I see in the natural world. Um, I'm a sucker for for like a good animal documentary. Like I love <laughs> watching, you know, and anything David Attenborough narrates, I'm I'm all about it. Um, and so when we lose him, man, I don't know what the animal documentary sort of landscape is going to do. But but I and I watch a lot of these animal documentaries with my kids. Like that's a thing that we have started to do. Um, and and it's really neat to share that with them. And and one of the things that we discovered. I'll often put things that we discover uh, when we're watching these documentaries into poems about them. And so we were watching this documentary and they talked about the longfin squid and this sort of phenomenon of when, you know, it experiences uh, a sort of painful sensation on one part of its body, it feels it across the entirety of its body. And that is a, a mechanism that it uses to protect itself. It creates a sort of sense of urgency 
um, within the body that allows it to to stay uh, to stay safe. And and it was just fascinating because it it felt felt like it spoke to um, as the poem sort of outlines with the metaphor that feeling of you know of your child experiencing either physical or emotional pain and the feeling of so desperately wanting to alleviate that pain from your child mm. and and sometimes feeling like you're unable to um you know i my kids are are still young and so uh, you know not so much of this is like them falling or running into something or uh, stumbling at the, you know, at the park, or, you know, it's boo-boos and band-aids and, <laughs> uh, and it's, you know, not to say that you know, for a six and a four-year-old and six-year-old don't have, you know, complex emotional terrain, but, but, you know, I talk to folks I know who have, uh, teenagers, you know, and the sort of, oh my gosh, you know, the, what it means to be a teenager <laughs> in this moment today is I, I can't imagine, I can't, I mean, I'm a former high school English teacher. And so I, you know, I spend time with, uh, with teenagers and and to be a young person, to be a teenager in this moment in time with with after the pandemic and with social media and and the sort of ubiquitousness of smartphones and the sort of social pressures and the, I mean it's just the there's a reason that you know so many uh, folks have been outlining the, the sort of uh, mental health crisis that so many of our young people are experiencing. But that same fee, you know the same thing that I feel when my daughter, uh, you know, accidentally, you know, scrapes her knee. There's a different iteration I've come to understand of that when your, you know, 15 year old hmm. is being bullied mm -hmm. or your or your 16 year old has body, uh, you know, body image issues or your, um, you know, 17 year old is wrestling with questions of self-worth, right? That's that, it's that same thing of wanting so desperately to help your child of, of feeling the pain almost vicariously mm. through that your child is feeling and and the, the 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 crater that it creates in you when you feel like you're not able to um to help when you you know with my four-year-old i can i can hold her and i can pick her up and i can rock her um and and you you know you do your best to comfort this this you know this person that you love and Sometimes you can and sometimes you can't. And that is that is one of the it's both this beautiful element of parenthood because you feel so connected to this other person or these other people. But it also is really hard because you you their pain, you experience it as your own in yeah. some ways. Yeah. I mean I can I can tell you that parenting teenagers right now is insanity. I mean, it's not just the pandemic and the disruption of it, but but also the the chaos that that has kind of come with trying to put the world back together, and they're mm. they're doing this all while you know the the some of the most important development of their brains is is taking place, and and everything looks so different uh, than it did not just than it did uh, when I was their age, but looks different than it did four years ago. Um, mm. uh, I, I have, uh, you know, I have a daughter who's just gotten through the, the college application process, which is a mm. nightmare and full <laughs> of disappointment and, and 
questions about self-worth and all of these things that, that I don't remember being part of applying to college. Uh, mm-hmm. And I have a son who's just finished his first year at college, and he was at, he's at Michigan State University where there was a shooting uh, mm. uh, in in the middle of in the, at the beginning of the the second semester. I mean, uh, it, it's it, they're dealing with things that 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 I feel ill equipped to to to, mm. to, try, to try to think of. Sometimes I, I want to have you read though from another of your poems. Uh, it's about school shootings. Uh, it's it's we see another school shooting on the news, and then I want to talk about how you're dealing with. Those kinds of things with a younger, uh, with younger children, um, as opposed to kids who are who are late teens. Absolutely. We see another school shooting on the news, and I don't know how I'm ever supposed to let you out of my sight. I think about those children, how they woke up and had breakfast that morning, that morning as they did all the mornings before half-eaten Pop-Tarts and eggs in a coat of ketchup. How they insisted on wearing their favorite shirt, even though it was covered in stains. How they tied their shoes and double-knotted them, just to be sure. How they smiled when they saw their friends on the bus and told them about the soccer game they'd had that weekend. The goal they scored. How none of them could have ever known what was coming. I fear everything I cannot control and know that I control nothing. I am standing in a thunderstorm attempting to shield you from every jagged slice of yellow sky. I'm trying to inhale all the smoke from this burning world while asking you to hold your breath. Hmm. So how do you talk to your children, if you do, about school shootings and I mean I, I would imagine you have to because it's not just teenagers who are finding themselves dodging bullets when they are supposed to be sitting in class it's it's little kids in a lot of yeah. these instances yeah I mean you think about Sandy Hook you think about Uvalde you mm-hmm. think about uh, you know far too many instances to name um, in which little children you know little little kids are subjected to a sort of a a trauma that I I simply cannot imagine Um, and yet also have to imagine because the sort of the part of the insidiousness of this epidemic of gun violence is that it is often completely arbitrary Um, and and that at any moment any of us any of us any of our children could be subjected to uh, a mass shooting. So, you know, how do I talk? To, how do you talk to a six-year-old and a four-year-old about that? <sighs> I feel like so much of parenthood is knowing that you have to talk about something with your kid and sort of stumbling over the language uh, to to the, trying to find the proper language to to use the language that both conveys the seriousness of the situation, but also that doesn't traumatize them, uh, that doesn't terrorize them. You know, and I think about this all the time in the context of raising black children, mm-hmm. right? You know, what like what does it mean to convey to them some of the realities of the world, the realities of our history? Mm-hmm. 
while also conveying to them that they are not, that the history of violence and oppression that has animated our history as black people in this country is not something that they are singularly defined by, right? Like, you know, I wrote, I wrote a whole book about the history of slavery in this country. Mm-hmm. And, and so I take seriously the fact that it is deeply important to talk to young people about these, you know? And we have conversations about this all the time in our house. We have conversations about slavery. We had this really uh, sort of big conversation about um, segregation and what segregation was this weekend um, mm. because my kids were reading a, a book about, um, or it was a National Geographic Junior uh, book about Martin Luther King. And we were talking about how, you know, Martin Luther King was born around the same time that my granddaddy was, you know, their great grandfather who's still with us, right? And I think that that sense of proximity, mm-hmm. that sense of like, oh, this this person you know, this person who who whose lap you sit in, whose laugh you love, who makes funny faces, experience like grew up in a world that is the world that Martin Luther King that we are reading about in this book was fighting to to make better. And so I I say all that because I think you know. These are conversations, hard conversations with my kids are things that I think about having all the time. But I also want my kids to know that as much as we have to understand the history of segregation, as much as we have to understand the history of slavery, that you are not defined as an individual by that history. And the sort of possibilities for your life are limited only by your imagination. Um, And so it's one of those both and. And in the context of gun violence, you know, I, I think that you know, at this age, we tell them to listen to their teachers and we tell them, take deep breaths. Mm. We tell the, you know, I kind of, I kind of go to the, the patron saint of, of Daniel Tiger um, for these sorts of things. And it's like, <laughs> what, 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 what would Daniel Tiger say? Um, what would Daniel Tiger's parents say? Um, and you, uh, yeah, you know, I, you don't want your kids, we're careful with it because you don't want your kids to walk around feeling like at any moment they could be they could be shot. Um, but you also want your kids to, you know, they're doing lockdown drills and they're they gotta be hiding, they're hiding in closets yeah. and they're, you know, they're, it, and I, more than anything, I just, it's just devastating to me that we live in a place where my four-year-old and six-year-old have to, you know, have drills where they hide in, in closets and, and learn how to lock doors um, so that they might be able to stay alive. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Let's go to Tony in Warren. Tony, welcome to the show. Yeah, good morning. Hey. So the point, about 30-some years ago, my wife and I were sitting around after a NA meeting, a bunch of recovering addicts trying to put our lives together. And we're all talking about having children. Hmm. And a couple says, how do you know what to do? How do you know what to do? And we said, well, I hope we know what not to do. <laughs> and it, it, it simply came down to, you know, let's look at where we came from, and hopefully we'll know what not to do. Hmm. And, and in our case, it worked out quite well. We raised two very strong women, healthy. They did not inherit our disease of addiction, but... We concentrated on what not to do, yeah. and then just left the rest up to instinct. Yeah. Tony, and, and it worked. Tony, I'm really glad you called and and shared that with us. Uh, what not to do? That's a really interesting 
framing for <laughs> for all the decisions you have to make uh, as a parent. Uh, Clint, uh, his call and that idea of um, how we learn to to parent and what we decide uh, to do it reminds me of a poem in your book uh, called "Across Generations." I wonder if you could read that for uh, our listeners. I'd be happy to. Across generations. So much of what I've learned about being a father, I learned from my father. And so much of what my father learned of raising children was pulled from the spaces between his father's name. My grandfather's father was a man whose name I can't remember, but I wonder if his rage is the ammunition trying to make a weapon of my voice. When I speak to my son, I carry the echo of generations, of men attempting to unlearn the anger on their father's tongues and the heat in their hands. That idea of distance from our parents, but also the desire for proximity, right? To, to, to be able to lean on what they did. I, I think that's just such a fundamental it's such a fundamental part of parenting. And again, it's a serious, serious tension. Yeah, it's, it's, I'm so glad um, for that call and, and, and so grateful for, for his honesty mm -hmm. um, because I think it really, I mean, that's how it is. I will always remember, and I think a lot of us have this moment where like we're at the hospital after my, my son was born, my firstborn. And, you know, we had my wife give birth we're full of emotion, we're overwhelmed, we stay one more night, and then the next day we're discharged. And I just remember the nurse sort of walk, you know, we were walking us out to the car and then handing us our son and waving goodbye. And I was like, wait, like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, why are you, why are you just giving me this baby? What is this feels wildly irresponsible. <laughs> of you like i'm just this 20 something person you know and you're just like hey i was like where's the brochure where's the manual where's the where's the orientation like aren't we coming you know and it's it's uh it's it, it's really wild that you it, it's just up it's it, it they give you, you give birth and then it's up to you you know and and many people have entire villages that you know help them raise children and um and and parents and friends and siblings and cousins and you know your neighbors and at its best you know your your child is is raised in a community um, that can both support the child and support you and your partner. Um, but there is something uh, sort of strangely isolating mm -hmm. about those early days where you're just like I I. You know, you do. You can read all the books, and you can read all the blogs, and you can listen to all the podcasts. Or you can talk to all the people, and still, like that first night, it's just you and this just-born baby, and and you know, <laughs> it's it, trying to figure it out. Um, and you know, I I think that so much of and you you alluded to this, but I think so much of parenthood is looking at the things your parents did. Yeah and making decisions about what you want to replicate 
and what you want to leave in the past. Yeah. Um, and that is is kind of the central organizing feature of I think a lot of our our parenting is like what are the things that shaped me both right. the good and the bad and what are the heirlooms of my own experience as a child that I want to pass on to my children and what are those intergenerational things that I want to prevent from passing on to my children that I want to make sure that my children don't have to experience in the same way that I did. And, and it's this sort of constant process of, of filtering yeah. in that way. Yeah. What to embrace and what to walk away from. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. We're going to take another quick break. And when we come back, we'll continue this conversation with Clint Smith about his book above ground. Also continue to hear from you on the phones and on social 313-577-1019 is the number you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit today. And, We'll work into the conversation that way as well. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. WDET provides trusted news, inclusive conversations, and cultural experiences that empower the community. 1019 WDET, Detroit's public radio station. Right today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and thanks for joining. Clint Smith is our guest. He's an author, poet, and staff writer at The Atlantic. He, his most recent book is Above Ground, which explores the complexities of parenthood in a time of political and cultural turmoil. Really celebrates the ways that joy, both big and small, can still be found in what is often a very scary world. We want to hear from you during the conversation as well. 313-577-1019. Call and tell us about your experiences with parenting, the decisions that you make, how you make them, how you feel about those decisions, uh, what you make of the really tough things that uh, that that visit on us as parents and and change the way we relate to our children and have our children relate to the world. Um, I want to go back to social here and uh, get a couple comments in. Uh, v on Twitter says, I may be an outlier, but how parents and young people handled the pandemic scares me for the future. She says, what if there is a world war, drafts, etc.? What if there is a worldwide natural disaster? I wish the pandemic would have made us all stronger together, not weaker. Really uh, common um, fear that I hear from from parents an awful lot. Let's go back to the phones here with Jeanette in Detroit. Jeanette, welcome to the show. Thank you. Hey. Uh, I'd I like to say I've enjoyed the show up until this point. I'm uh, a poet at heart. <laughs> and Mrs. Smith, I've enjoyed your poems addressing uh, different issues related to parenting. Um, one of the things um, is a question, and a, I don't know, it's, it's sort of a question. Uh, the question is, how do we ensure that our children have the resiliency to endure uh, various issues they face um, in schools, in the community, 
anywhere where they are not around their parents, mm-hmm. uh, will they have the resilience to endure those issues that they face? Um, and I, there's no, I, I'm, I'm surmising there's no one correct answer to that because you don't know whether they have the resilience until they actually face that. So um, I think uh, one of the things parents try to do, I'm a parent myself, is try to instill in them um, the the approach to take when faced with certain things. Mm-hmm. I know as a, I don't want to go on and on, but I know as a parent myself, the issues that we're facing today, it wasn't that way. So we have to reflect on how we were raised, look at what's happening today, and just hope that you instill that that. Um, resilience in our children. Yeah. Uh, Jeanette, really great question. And of course, it's an issue that I think all of us kind of struggle with is is building resilience uh, without being too hard on on our, our children and, and trying to guide them through really difficult experiences uh, in a way that does build uh, that resilience. Uh, Clint, before you, you respond to Jeanette, I think I'd like to have you read At the Superdome After the Storm Has Passed, which I think really gets to this idea of of resilience in an interesting way. I mean, y- you are a New Orleans native, uh, and and uh, Katrina was uh, a devastating, devastating uh, event that happened, I always feel like, twice uh, to New Orleans, the storm and then, of course, the, the the awful response that uh, that we had to the resp- to the storm, especially in those early days. But uh, but give us a read of that poem, and then uh, talk about what Jeanette's wondering about here. Yeah. At the Superdome, after the storm has passed, a helicopter hovers overhead like a black cloud of smoke, its blades dismembering the pewter sky. Men in uniform stand outside with guns nested under their arms and the hot, wet air of August licking their weary faces. Two women push a homemade raft through warm brown water that rises up and hugs their chest. There is an old man inside the raft who once was a stranger to them when such a word meant something other than please help me. Inside, children are running across the emerald turf jumping through rings of light that spill from the sky onto the field. Their small bodies sprinting between the archipelago of sprawled cots. There is a mother who sits high in the seats of the stadium, rocking her baby back and forth, her her voice cocooning the child in a shell of song. Before desperation descended under the roof, before the stench swept across the air like a heavy fog, before the lights went out and the buses arrived, before the cameras came inside and showed the failure of an indifferent nation, there were families inside, though there were some who failed to call them families. There were children inside, though there were some who gave them a more callous name. There were people inside, though there were some who only saw shadows. So you were a teenager when Katrina happened, is that right? I was 17, yeah, my, starting my senior year of high school. So talk about resilience. I mean, 
it's the kind of thing that I think we all think of when uh, when we think about things that make us resilient. Uh, what were the things for you that you drew out of uh, that experience? Yeah, you know, it's interesting, and, and I appreciate you asking questions so much, but sometimes it's hard to know what the balance is between resilience and then a child sort of uh, suffocating mm-hmm. their their emotions or, or sweeping their feelings under the rug. It's such a fine line between the two of them. You know, I think for so many years, I did the, the latter where Hurricane Katrina was was such a devastating experience for me, not only because, I mean, for so many reasons. I, you know, it was the only home I'd ever known, the only home I had ever, ever lived in, and I had to finish high school somewhere else mm-hmm. uh, because of the, you know, watching thousands of people killed in, the home, in your hometown um, uh, in many ways that felt um, unnecessary. Uh, watching the sort of the an explicit manifestation of structural racism in ways that I had not necessarily encountered before and, and in ways that I felt so proximate to. Um, and because I lost my own home, you know, under eight feet of water, like so many others. And I think that the 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 amalgamation of those experiences was something I didn't necessarily have the language or the toolkit with which to process when I was 17. And so I kind of just stuffed it down and didn't really talk about it. And I just said, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. Mm. Trying to convince both others and also trying to convince myself. And I don't think it was until many, many years later that I began to sort of process what that experience had done to me uh, and that I had begun to sort of unpack all of the things that I wish I had been able to unpack earlier. And, you know, that was half a lifetime ago now. And I think I'm still very much in the process of of sort of excavating within myself what that moment, what that year yeah. uh, did to me and what it, what it brought up for me. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, Clint Smith, uh, author of Above Ground and staff writer for The Atlantic. It's always great to catch up with you. Really, really appreciate you coming on to talk about your new book, Above Ground. This was a really wonderful conversation for our listeners to hear. Thanks thanks for being with us. It's always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Okay, that is going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when we're going to talk with the host of the Mackinac Policy Conference about this year's theme and the policies that people think can make Michigan a better place. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.